From NPR, this is Justice Talking. I'm Margot Adler. For our final show, we'll bring you interviews with some of our favorite guests who challenge conventions or common perceptions. Maybe I was also just tired of having a secret. It's a burden. People with schizophrenia read the newspapers and we see how we're portrayed. And it's, you know, you you tell at great risk. We'll also look at how we've covered two major topics, the Supreme Court. Well, if Guantanamo Bay is a legal black hole, then it is the brightest, lightest legal black hole I've ever seen. After all, these detainees are on their third trip to the United States Supreme Court. And national security. As we're talking here today, we have, uh, I think it's over 2,000 nuclear weapons on hair trigger alert to be launched on 15-minute warning by the decision of one man, the president. After the news, stay with us. This is Justice Talking from the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg Public Policy Center. I'm Margo Adler. After almost nine years on the air and more than 300 programs, today's show is Justice Talking's last. Our grant has ended and we've not been able to obtain alternate funding. So on this final program, we will look back over the past couple of years at some of the contributions we've made to public radio, public discourse, and we hope to your life. Later in the show, we'll look at how we've covered one of the crucial issues of our time, national security. And we'll look back at some of the major Supreme Court cases of the Roberts Court. But first, we wanted to bring you some of the voices and some of the people who have challenged our conventions and our perceptions. People who spoke from the depth of their own experience, but who also had something larger to say. We'll start with three American young people who are training to become doctors in an unlikely place. In September 2000, Fidel Castro announced the creation of full scholarships for U.S. students of little means to go to medical school in Cuba. Some saw it as a generous humanitarian gesture. Others saw it as propaganda, a sly public relations strategy. Last summer, I spoke with three current medical students. Narciso Ortiz's family emigrated to the United States from the Dominican Republic in 1981. Well, ever since I was small, I wanted to become a doctor. There was no one in my family that was a doctor, and there were people that were sick. For them to go see a doctor, they had to pay money, and they also had to pay for the medicines. And so um, they basically had no access to health care. And uh, after, you know, also myself, I was, I was an asthma uh, patient, and uh, I had to pay lots of money to go to the hospitals in, in the Dominican Republic. And so ever since I was small, I wanted to be able to grow up and help out my family and myself. When Jessie Barreto was little, she wanted to be an astronaut. Then when she got older, she wanted to be an anthropologist. But when she was in college, an experience volunteering at a medical clinic changed all that. A woman came in. She was a spinning image of my grandmother, Lucha, and um, she was about 65. She was really short, and she comes in, and she only spoke Spanish, and I was the only translator at that time and, uh, in the clinic. I took her back. Um, I was doing a lot of translations with her, and, you know, really quick, uh, they had found a breast lump, a large breast lump, and um, she was undocumented, and, she, you know, of course, she didn't speak English. She just fell through the cracks is what happened. And, and at that moment, I just thought, I just couldn't stop thinking about my grandmother and what if it was her. And so that's when I just said, I, you know, I really think I should just be a doctor instead of an anthropologist. 
In talking with these aspiring doctors, one thing was clear. They will come away from their time in Cuba with more than a medical degree. We all go down there with certain political uh, knowledge or, if you can say, um, awareness. And we're impacted by the people we go to school with. I mean, what's important to a um, Colombian or to a Bolivian or to Argentinian uh, in their daily lives is uh, not what's important to uh, an American living in the United States. And so I think that you learn how to be more sensitive. I think you get a much broader sense of, you know, there's other people in the world and they have different issues and different things that are important to them than what we necessarily think of here in the United States. The only requirement of this free Cuban education is to use the medical training to serve a poor or underserved community. Jesse Barreto wants to go back home when she becomes a doctor. I would like to go back to New Mexico and practice uh, because there it's the second, it's the second poorest state and has the second highest uh, uninsured. So I want to go back there to practice medicine. I feel like if I'm back there, I can use my bilingual skills. I can use my emergency medicine skills because the Cubans are trained very highly in emergency medicine and disaster and last minute, you know, and I think that a lot of the uninsured uh, patients in the United States, you know, they go to the ER because it is a last minute crisis. I asked Lillian Holloway why she thinks the Cuban government is giving her and her fellow students a free ride and if she thinks it's just a public relations ploy. In Cuba, there's this this really big concept of solidarity. And I think that as Americans, we don't really fully understand that concept because there's nothing that we get or give for free here. And um, not even in a bad way. It's just that here the idea of, of, of giving something to someone is like, oh, you donate food to the poor starving people in Africa or something. But in some way, we're still getting a, a benefit. We're still saying that I gave to this person who is on some level lesser than me or on some level um, less fortunate than me, but it gives me a boost in some way. They they often say that their solidarity isn't giving what um, lo que te sobre. It's not giving the the leftover food that you have on your plate because you weren't going to use it anyway. <laughs> Rather, it's it's this idea of giving what is precisely hard for you to give. I mean, Cubans have lots of doctors, but it's not like they don't need their doctors. <laughs> and the education is is free for us, but it's not free for them to offer it. It's it's definitely very costly for them, and so. They're giving all these black and Latino, poor black and Latino kids, a free education with everything free with their only obligation is to go back to the States and serve their underserved um, communities. It just seems like a stretch to be a ploy. You can hear more from Lillian, Narciso, and Jesse, as well as the rest of our program about the Cuban embargo on our website, justicetalking.org. The format of our show has allowed us to spotlight perspectives not often heard in the media or even in conversations between friends. That's why the next two women you'll hear were among our favorite interviews. Nina Hartley has been an adult film actress for more than 20 years. She is also a sex educator and a registered nurse. Two decades in the industry have given her a unique take on how attitudes toward porn have changed and how they haven't. In the beginning, of course, the religious uh, prohibitionists uh, were all on the moral crusade. This is an affront to God, it is adultery, etc., etc. And the 
um, anti-porn feminist uh, crowd or the so-called left anti-position was that it uh, is a tool of the patriarchy and the existence of it is de facto demeaning to women. So now, 20 plus years into, at uh, 25 years into the argument, um, a lot of the religious moralists are now using um, feminist language to speak against pornography, as well as to speak against um, uh, reproductive choice and options. Is there porn out there that you wouldn't watch? Absolutely. Absolutely. Most of it I wouldn't watch. Most of it is excurable. Because why? Because our culture is so conflicted about sexuality, we do not grant it the grace and honor I think it deserves. We don't, we don't let it be a subject of art. We let it be a subject of commerce because we, have, we are very of two minds about it. And so I do believe that the culture gets the adult material it deserves. And so we are a conflicted society that creates a massive amount of material that most of it is very poor quality. <laughs> You've said that porn is not just a commercial enterprise for you. It's also political. It's political. It's social. It's my, you know, latent Berkeley do-goodism. Um, I came of age in the 70s in, in Berkeley, California, where... I was reading, before I was actually sexually active, I was reading a lot of the theory about sexuality and what did it mean and, and women's rights. And, and I was told early on, you know, take responsibility for your own pleasure, learn your body. This is when they had the consciousness raising groups and women would get together and look at their own cervixes and look at their own vulvas, which they'd never done before. And so this was very exciting for a young teenager to realize I could have this power over my body. I have control. Really, I do? Fantastic. And your own contribution, what do you think that's been? My contribution has been to help take some of the scariness away from sex and to certainly help empower people at home, men and women both, to feel more confident um, about sex and sexuality so they can get more pleasure out of it. Whether or not you agree with Nina Hartley's choices, she smashes a whole lot of stereotypes. Ellen Sachs was another guest on our show who challenged commonly held perceptions. She wrote about her struggle with schizophrenia in her memoir, The Center Cannot Hold, My Journey Through Madness. She's a law professor at the University of Southern California. Ellen was given different diagnoses over the years and underwent both forced and voluntary treatment. It took decades for her to come to terms with the reality of her mental illness. I knew schizophrenia was a damning diagnosis and it was very upsetting to hear it. Um, I was not explicitly told you have a grave prognosis. I read that later. Um, but I was told that I probably should scale down my expectations and, and that kind of thing. Um, my brother, one of my brothers, Warren, has always said I was very stubborn and I kind of stubbornly refused to admit that, uh, that I was going to have a scale down life. And you don't. <laughs> and I don't. I don't. I've ended up having a very good life. I've been very fortunate. Your book is a kind of coming out of the closet about Absolutely. your illness. Um, Absolutely. Why did you decide to do that? Uh, you know, I thought about it for a long, long time. And I, for a long time, I thought I wouldn't do it. And it just gradually dawned on me that this could be a very important and helpful thing to do for people. A, a psychiatric friend of mine, a psychiatrist friend of mine, when, when I told her about the story was uh, – a bit taken aback. She, she said, gosh, I would never have known. She said, don't you want to do it under a pseudonym? And I said, well, you know, I thought that would send the wrong message that it's too awful, awful to say out loud. And she said, well, but do you want to become known essentially as a schizophrenic with a job? And I was really taken aback and I thought, well, no, I don't. And I want people to read my work, you know, without prejudice and, and that kind of thing and see it for what it's worth. But then I thought, you know, I probably could never write anything academic that might help as many people as this. 
and I was willing I was willing to do it. And maybe I was also just tired of having a secret. It's a burden. People with schizophrenia read the newspapers and we see how we're portrayed and it's you know you you tell at great risk. It took a lot of courage for law professor Ellen Sachs to go public with the truth about being schizophrenic. We've had countless people on Justice Talking for whom telling their truth has been a way to bring visibility to issues that have been overlooked, ignored, or misunderstood. As we look back at our shows over the years, we want to say thank you to all the people who have had the courage to say things that are difficult and unexpected, and who have increased our own and our listeners' understanding of personal, national, and international issues. Coming up, arguably the biggest legal issue of the past few years has been national security. How do we keep our country safe while also preserving our civil liberties? Stay with us. This is Justice Talking, the public radio show about law, justice, and American life. I'm Margot Adler. After nine years on the air, Justice Talking is ending. Today we're bringing you some of our favorite moments from our recent programs. Justice Talking focused on a variety of legal and public policy issues, from criminal justice to the environment, but one topic seemed to resurface time and again. Whether talking about the stockpiles of nuclear weapons that remain after the end of the Cold War civil liberties since 9-11, or the rights of detainees at Guantanamo, the debate over national security has been a constant theme of our program. One interview in particular stands out for me. In 2006, I spoke with Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense during the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, about the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis and the current state of nuclear weapons and nuclear disarmament. For many people in my generation, McNamara had been the absolute embodiment of Cold War rigidity. But here he was, taking a startling and unexpected position. I asked him about the Cuban Missile Crisis and how close we came to nuclear war. Very, very close indeed. During the crisis, Soviet submarines were trailing U.S. vessels. We knew that. But we didn't know then, and we didn't know until a meeting uh, within the past couple of years, I guess, that those Soviet submarines carried torpedoes, one of which on each sub carried a nuclear weapon. Wow. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And the Soviet submarines were out of touch with their command centers, as is often the case with submarines. And they therefore had the authority, when they thought in the interest of the Soviet Union, to launch a nuclear weapon against the U.S., what lessons did you take from that experience? Get rid of nuclear weapons. That is the absolute lesson of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it's been 20 years since the Cold War ended. Why has nothing changed? Because the public doesn't understand it. People say, McNamara is just totally wrong. You can't get rid of nuclear weapons. We need them. They're 
necessary for the defense of the U.S. They're not necessary for the defense of the U.S. In all of my years in working with nuclear weapons uh, and the discussion of them, which go back uh, over 50 years, I've never had a piece of paper presented to me, and I don't believe any exists in the world, that shows how we could ever initiate the use of nuclear weapons to our advantage. Against a, a nuclear state, it would be suicidal. Against a non-nuclear state, it's, uh, it's totally unjustified, mm -hmm. the use of a nuclear weapon. Now, you know, when I was growing up, we thought about nuclear war all the time. It was the stuff of our nightmares. It determined many of our views about the future. You tell us things haven't changed, but I don't think people even think about the nuclear threat anymore. I mean, oh, that's, that's true. But they don't know that as we're talking here today, we have, uh, I think it's over 2,000 nuclear weapons on hair trigger alert to be launched on 15-minute warning by the decision of one man, the president. And in that 15-minute period, he wouldn't have time to talk to hardly anybody, perhaps to uh, the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. But that's about all. Mm -hmm. That is a terrible risk, not just to the U.S., to the world. I want to bring up another issue. Um, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty started with certain assumptions that small countries would give up their right to create nuclear weapons, and in exchange, the five countries that had such weapons at the time would slowly divest themselves of their nuclear arsenal. Article it's 6 of the Nuclear Weapons Treaty that you just referred to requires that the nuclear powers join together to lay out a plan to eliminate nuclear weapons. We didn't have any intention of doing it, and we're not moving in that direction, nor are the other nuclear powers. So it's sort of, I mean, given that, it's sort of, I guess it, it, it sort of makes sense that some of the smaller countries are saying, well, you know, if they're not divesting of nuclear uh, weapons, then why shouldn't we create them? The answer is because if you create them, you're very likely to lay down the basis for nuclear war in the future that will destroy you. For God's sakes, don't yield to that temptation to spit in our eye because we have failed to fulfill our legal obligations under the treaty. That was Robert McNamara speaking to us in 2006. This is Justice Talking. I'm Marco Adler. We're sharing with you some of the best Justice Talking interviews focusing on national security. Since 9-11, one of the most controversial security issues to repeatedly come before the Supreme Court is the rights of detainees kept at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Are the detainees prisoners of war or enemy combatants? Do they deserve the same rights as U.S. citizens, including legal representation and a trial? Should military tribunals be used to judge their guilt or innocence? Recently, the Supreme Court decided in Boumediene versus Bush that those incarcerated at Guantanamo have the right under habeas corpus to challenge their incarceration in federal court, and that the U.S. has failed to provide such a hearing. Last fall, I was joined by Neil Katyal and Bradford Berenson. Neil had argued the case, Hamden versus Rumsfeld, before the Supreme Court. The case challenged military trials at Guantanamo. Bradford was a lawyer for President Bush from 2001 to 2003. We talked about the Combatant Status Review Tribunals, which the court recently ruled to be inadequate. 
I asked Neil what he thought about the CSRTs, or C-certs. There are a couple things that I think are really problematic about it that I'd isolate. One is that uh, these detainees, who are many of whom have been locked up at Guantanamo for years, are hauled before this tribunal and asked to defend themselves, which is an inordinately difficult thing to do when they're not trained in the American legal system. Many of these people have a, uh, a fourth grade education or something like that. Uh, so it's not really quite reasonable to expect that these folks can defend themselves against the charges, particularly when the charges themselves are really on the, uh, you know, the most uh, extreme forms of hearsay. I mean, in the Boumediene case itself that the Supreme Court is hearing, this is what happened in one of the uh, detainees' case, CSRTs. The detainee says the following. This is from the transcript. I asked you to tell me who this person was. Then I could tell you if I'd known this person, the person who was accusing him, and if this person was a terrorist. Maybe I knew this person as a friend. Maybe it was a person that worked with me. Maybe it was a person on my team. But I don't know if this person is a Bosnian, Indian, or whatever. If you tell me the name, then I can respond and defend myself against this accusation. And then the tribunal president says, we're asking you the questions. And so uh, they don't give him the person's name. So in this you know, in this proceeding like this where they say, well, someone said that you were a terrorist, and then they don't tell you who, the ter- who that person is, it becomes really difficult to defend yourself. Um, and so that's really quite unlike the historic and cherished right of habeas corpus, which is really a searching procedure to make sure that you, you know, have the right person before you take away their essence of liberty. Brad, your view about the Combatant Status Review Tribunals. Well, there's a couple of critical things to understand in thinking about the CSRTs and indeed thinking about the entire habeas corpus issue in front of the Supreme Court. The first is that as cherished and ingrained in our fundamental law as the right to habeas corpus is and has been for centuries, it has never, ever extended to alien enemy combatants held outside sovereign territory. Uh, You can survey hundreds of years of Anglo-American legal history and find literally no examples where alien soldiers or enemies who are fighting against the sovereign are afforded a right of habeas corpus where they're captured and detained outside of sovereign territory. You would imagine uh, that just through mistake or accident there would be a few such examples, and, and there really aren't. So it's important not to confuse the scope of the habeas corpus right and the habeas corpus writ Uh, that U.S. citizens enjoy, um, either here in the United States or abroad, with the extent of habeas corpus rights traditionally enjoyed by our enemies at arms, which are essentially zero. No one argues that the C-certs look anything like the kind of process that you or I would be entitled to uh, if we were arrested or captured in the course of a law enforcement operation. But the fact is that the Military Commissions Act affords a literally unprecedented and generous uh, suite of rights to alien enemy combatants in the course of war, including review in our Article Three civilian court system. So the C-cert process, uh, for all its faults and deficiencies, it still far exceeds the baseline for people in the detainees' positions, which are established by international law like the Geneva Conventions um, and are established in the decisions of our own Supreme Court. Neil, I'm going to assume that you're going to say that Guantanamo Bay is part of the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I I think Brad does a really wonderful job defending, I think, what is a very difficult position, a position that I think um, 
is not going to prevail in the Supreme Court. And let me isolate a couple reasons why. Uh, the first is that um, Brad says that uh, that we have never uh, had habeas corpus rights outside the United States in the United States territory, and that is correct. And, and I don't think the detainees at Guantanamo are arguing. Certainly, I'm not arguing that uh, if you're in Afghanistan or Iraq or something like that, that you have a right to habeas corpus. The claim in the case is that you have a right if you're at Guantanamo. And Guantanamo, as the Supreme Court said in 2004, for all practical purposes, is United States territory. The reason why we have not in past conflicts extended habeas corpus when people are detained in other places is because the law of that other country protects them. Here, what the American government has done is pick the one place on earth where they say, the United States Constitution doesn't protect you. Oh, and by the way, neither does the Cuban Constitution. And so that's the real problem. That's what causes the international outrage at Guantanamo and why even conservative English jurists uh, like the law lords say this is a legal black hole. You've brought up a lot of issues, but I first want to ask Brad if you think that Guantanamo is a legal black hole. Well, if Guantanamo Bay is a legal black hole, then it is the brightest, lightest legal black hole I've ever seen. After all, these detainees are on their third trip to the United States Supreme Court. They have the kind of legal representation in the person of people like Neil Katyal and others that most ordinary Americans could only dream of, and they have had the most uh, aggressive, creative, and thorough lawyering done on their behalf of any group of people uh, that I've seen in my career. So it is not uh, a legal black hole. There are lawyers going down there uh, literally every week to meet with their clients. They are not protected by the United States Constitution, at least that that is certainly our government's position, but they are protected under international law. They're unlawful combatants, so they have the lowest level of protection of, of the categories known to the international law of armed conflict. So the CSERT process certainly isn't perfect. But it's also uh, not right at all, in my view, to say that Guantanamo Bay is a, is a legal black hole. That was Bradford Berenson and Neil Katyal talking about the legal rights of detainees at Guantanamo. The conversation between Berenson and Katyal is part of a complicated national conversation. We have been arguing over such things as when is torture justified, if ever, and is it effective, and what are the rights of detainees. But every once in a while, you hear someone speak who has had to deal with these things very personally and has thought about them deeply. Independent producer Dan Epstein was an Army interrogator for five years. Dan spoke with other interrogators who had been in Iraq or Afghanistan, such as Terry Carney, a staff sergeant who says the interrogation process is something that happens between two human beings. The guy on the other side of the table is a person. He's not some abstract evil poured in the flesh. If you can keep that in mind, you don't have to like him. But if you can remember that he's a person, you can get the information. To commit torture, you have to forget he's a person, at which point... You have no empathy. Without empathy, you can't notice what he wants to talk about. You can't spot what he's willing to talk about. And you can't find the weaknesses that you can exploit to get him to talk about the things he doesn't want to talk about. So you're saying that empathy is a critical skill, a critical feature that an interrogator has to have in order to do their job. Yeah, you have to. You have to be able to sit there and say, 
this is what he feels. You don't have to like him. You can hate him six ways from Sunday. You can, you can want to kill him. You can't, however, let that affect what you're doing in the booth. Can America trust its military interrogators? Based on the interrogators I know, which is a fair number, yes. Why? I'm hearing all these stories about abuse. Why, how, how, why are you saying I can trust these guys? Why do you say you can trust us, you right and me? Now, right now, you can trust them because the idea is a few bad apples is certainly true right now. Whether or not those apples are at the top or the bottom of the food chain, I don't know. Based on what I do know, that the enhanced interrogation techniques have to be authorized pretty high up. The folks at the bottom aren't driving the bus. So what you're saying is that America can trust its military interrogators, but maybe they can't trust the leadership of those interrogators. That's a tougher question, and it's not one I can really answer because... Well, what do you feel? You, have to, you, you, have, you obviously have an opinion on it, and... The policies that allow for enhanced interrogation, I think, are wrong. I'd like to think if someone ordered me to do that, that I'd refuse and that I'd be willing to take whatever level of punishment comes with refusing that order. Altogether, Terry Carney and I have discussed interrogation and the current controversy for more than 10 hours face-to-face. We talked about how the training we received really does work, and that's based on Sergeant Carney's own experiences and on comments from interrogators he knows at Guantanamo. We talked about how torture is ineffective, even dangerous, because the lies a prisoner tells to stop being tortured can lead to decisions that get our soldiers killed. And we talked about the debate itself. I know it may seem self-evident to you or me, I I hope it does, but why is this debate on interrogation so important? Because it's about who we are. It's about being the good guys. It's about saying, yeah, maybe you want to knock us off our perch or destroy us or you hate us, whatever it is that's driving you to want to attack us. But you know what? We're not going to give up us to beat you. I was talking with an interrogator I knew from the 80s. And Chris, I said, isn't it okay to torture people who have information that could save American lives? Oh, Dan, he said, do I really need to answer that for you? Yes, you do, I said. Of course not. We're the Americans, was his reply. In the global war on terror, some might call that a naive or even a quaint notion. But in my opinion, it's exactly the idea responsible and influential people should keep in mind as they promote so-called enhanced interrogation techniques. Clearly, our interrogators get it, and I trust them. That was independent producer Dan Epstein talking with Staff Sergeant Terry Carney about what really happens when an interrogator faces a detainee. National security issues have been an integral part of what we cover here on Justice Talking, and many of these cases have gone all the way to the Supreme Court. Coming up, we look at a few of our most significant Supreme Court moments, from race and education to employment discrimination. Stay with us. Justice Talking is produced by the Annenberg Public Policy Center, a think tank at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The program is made possible with support from the Annenberg Foundation. The foundation works to advance public well-being through improved communication.
Additional support comes from NPR member stations and West Legal Ed Center, where lawyers can listen to Justice Talking for MCLE credit online at westlegaledcenter.com. And from Oxford University Press, publisher of the United States Constitution, What It Says, What It Means, A Hip Pocket Guide. The Hip Pocket Constitution is available at justicetalking.org. This is NPR National Public Radio. While Justice Talking is going off the air, it isn't disappearing. You can listen to the entire archive of more than 300 shows on topics as diverse as pornography, race, and education, the death penalty, and pets and the law. You can listen to shows you've missed or ones you want to hear again. Just go to our website, justicetalking.org, where you'll also find information about our guests, the law, and links to useful resources. This is Justice Talking, the public radio show about law, justice, and American life. I'm Margo Adler. Today is our last Justice Talking broadcast, so we're bringing you some of the highlights from the past few years. While we've tackled all kinds of issues on this program, from trash and recycling to pets and the law, we also closely followed the cases and controversies before the U.S. Supreme Court. We've seen some landmark decisions handed down over the past nine years and witnessed significant changes to the bench. In 2005, Chief Justice William Rehnquist passed away, and after a tumultuous nomination process, John Roberts was appointed his successor. Then in January of 2006, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor retired and was replaced by Samuel Alito. Many court watchers speculated on what might happen with a court that appeared to be swinging to the conservative right. Two cases that were struck down by the Supreme Court dealt with race and public school assignments. One school placement plan came out of Seattle, Washington, the other out of Louisville, Kentucky. Both used race as a factor in deciding where students should go to school. Before the court made its decision, we spoke to Charles Ogletree, from Harvard University, and Terence Pell, president of the Center for Individual Rights. We asked them what implications these two cases would have on Brown versus Board of Education, the historic 1954 Supreme Court decision that desegregated public schools. Well, the Supreme Court's argument in December on both the Louisville and Seattle cases raised some disturbing uh, questions about Brown. And my perspective is this. If you ask William Coleman, who was the Secretary of Transportation under President uh, Gerald Ford, uh, a black Republican, uh, he is very disturbed about the court's current interpretation of Brown. If you ask Jack Greenberg, one of the lawyers who argued Brown, he's disturbed as well. And what I should say, what Louisville and Seattle are trying to do is not to resegregate America. They're trying to prevent the resegregation by making sure that public schools are open to everybody uh, and that quality education is available to everybody. And those were two of the central points in the Brown case in 1954. Terry? Well, I don't think we're really talking about keeping schools closed uh, to students from any particular race. In both Seattle and Louisville, the schools are open to everyone. Uh, Both school systems have what's called an open choice system. Uh, where students can attend any school they want anywhere in the district. So right away, we're light years away from Brown versus Board of Education, because in Brown, of course, uh, the schools assigned students to particular schools by race. There was no uh, choice in the matter whatsoever. Uh, And second, uh, as it turns out in both Seattle and Louisville, 
these schools are uh, racially quite integrated. There's a very good racial mix of students in each and every school. And so these cases are not about trying to remedy what some call segregated schools or race-exclusive schools or even racially concentrated schools. Uh, so I think we're light years away from Brown, uh, both in logic and in uh, spirit. Terry, when the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the Seattle and Louisville cases in December, Justice Kennedy repeatedly asked when race can be used as a factor in school selection. And he asked whether race can be used to determine where a school is built. You need to build a new school. There are three sites. One, it would be all one race. Site two would be all the other race. Site three would be uh, a a diversity of races. Can the school board, uh, with... Uh, the, the intent to have diversity, pick site number three. How would you answer Justice Kennedy's question? Uh, where do you draw the line? Can school districts ever consider the race of students when trying to voluntarily integrate the schools? Uh, sure. I think it's appropriate for schools to take into account uh, attendance patterns, including racial attendance patterns, when they decide where to build schools. I think that's clearly one of the reasons that both Seattle and Louisville had in mind when they adopted the open choice plans. You know, I agree that uh, race is still a reality in American life, and I agree that uh, there are uh, racially concentrated neighborhoods, uh, but I don't agree that uh, schools are powerless uh, to do something about that, uh, as manifested by the two cases of the two school districts that are, in fact, before the Supreme Court. Charles, some African-Americans that I've talked to have said they would have done much better if resources, including good teachers and money, had simply been poured into schools and black communities. Some African-Americans that I've talked to say Brown versus Board of Education never worked and was even a mistake. What do you say to them? Uh, And the reality is that no one is suggesting that... uh, that black people are simply saying, let's sit next to a white person and that's going to be the end of the equation. What they're saying is that resources matter, quality education matter, uh, and we're not seeing it in the area where most of these students uh, who are black and brown uh, and poor uh, are attending uh, urban schools. So um, it's nice theoretically to talk about segregation, but we pay taxes in Illinois and Michigan and Ohio and California and New York. And why should there be a white school and a black school? Uh, Why should there not be these public institutions supported and open equally to everyone? And why shouldn't we address the history uh, of trying to keep uh, folks from those opportunities? So I think it's an interesting idea to talk about, you know, let's just give us some money. But the reality is uh, we need that, but we also need to solve the problem that we live in one nation, uh, not many nations, and that the idea of integration should be central Uh, to our, our, our legacy and our sense of what democracy really means. That was Harvard Law Professor Charles Ogletree and Terrence Pell from the Center for Individual Rights on Justice Talking in January of 2007. The Supreme Court took on another controversial case dealing with the education system, Morse versus Frederick, otherwise known as Bong Hits for Jesus, which addressed the free speech rights of students. We were joined by Ken Starr, the dean of Pepperdine School of Law. He represented the school board in this case, and Jay Seculo from the American Center for Law and Justice. Ken gave us the details of the case. It was a cold uh, day in January in 2002, and the Olympic uh, torch en route to Salt Lake City for the Winter Olympics was 
coming for the first uh, time in Alaskan history. And at about 9.30 in the morning, uh, the uh, school adjourned uh, classes and the students went outside. And uh, in that uh, uh, pleasant setting, uh, Joseph Frederick, uh, an 18-year-old senior, uh, unfurled uh, a banner of 14 feet long that read, Bong Hits the numeral for Jesus, bong hits for Jesus. Deborah Morse, the principal of the school, was out and about looking on and enjoying the ceremony, but also trying to maintain order, sees the sign, immediately goes over to Joseph and his uh, fellow students, one was not a student, and says, take it down. Uh, The other students sort of fled. The scene, Joseph resisted. Deborah Morse confiscated the banner. He was eventually suspended from school for a variety of uh, infractions, but the key point was the display of this uh, 14-foot banner. But that's the background with uh, Joseph Frederick saying what the principal did, supported by the school board, was a violation of my First Amendment rights to free speech. Jay, one of the main disputes in the case is whether the banner was displayed as part of a school-sponsored event. Why does this matter? Well, when it's a school-sponsored event, of course, there's a greater degree of control that the school administration can exercise over student speech. What makes this one interesting is when there is deemed, if there were deemed to be more school involvement here than we think there was, I think that, you know, tends to cut against or gives more control or authority to school officials. Not complete control, not total control. Students do possess these rights of freedom of speech, even inside the schoolhouse. But it does create more of a situation where it's a school-sponsored event. I'd like to get back to the content of the banners. Does the content really matter? Um, Would things can uh, be different, for example, if the banner said, I love Jesus or smoking pot is fun? Well, the first, I think, would be completely protected as religious expression. The second, under the school board's policy, would not be because uh, smoking pot is fun, uh, is in fact encouraging drug use, and that is one thing that the Juno School Board, like virtually every school board in America, thousands of school boards agree, drugs have no place and the encouragement of drug use have absolutely no place in public education and we give that assurance to our, uh, the parents and that in my judgment is entirely consistent with the first amendment because schools are special places with what the supreme court said in tinker was special characteristics in other words the first amendment does not apply as fully with such strength as some might want it to in schools as elsewhere Jay, uh, if the banner read, smoking pot is fun, would you be in this case? Well, I, I, I tend to take the view on the student message. And as I said at the beginning of the broadcast, Margaret, I, I, you know, I think this was uncommonly silly. I mean, it was, it was, I don't know if it was a political statement or not. But I think we have to be careful to how we draw what is a message and what is not and what is an appropriate message and what is not. And while lines are always drawn in every case and in every situation, I think here, if it was, as you just indicated, I still would say, look, it's, it's probably protected speech here, and we've got to be careful on the regulatory nature of it. But the message does matter. There has to be a real communicative message. And one of the things we said, this message, that this student was communicating, we opened this up in our brief and said, you know, look, this is not a great case for review on a major principle uh, in and of itself just because of the muddled nature of what was being said here. 
That was Jay Sekulow and Ken Starr talking about the Supreme Court case known as Bong Hits for Jesus. As with many guests on our show, this was another case where stereotypes of left and right fell by the wayside. Jay Sekulow, who often sides with extremely conservative groups, defended the high school student's right to free speech, fearing that limiting his speech would have ramifications on the right to religious expression. This is Justice Talking. I'm Margo Adler. Today is our last broadcast, so we're sharing with you some of our favorite moments. Once in a while, a Supreme Court case will center on a dynamic individual determined to pursue justice. Such was the case with Lily Ledbetter. Her case, Ledbetter v. Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, examined the way women can sue a company for employment discrimination. Much to Ledbetter's surprise, the court sided with Goodyear, saying that Ledbetter waited too long to file her claim. I'm very disappointed, and I appreciate the opportunity to say, too, that I could not believe that Justice Thomas ruled against me, and even Justice Kennedy. I felt sure that we would have picked up one or both of those two men, and uh, I am in see Justice Thomas at one time was over the EEOC. And the fact is, 180 days, you can't find out. In my company, I was told you do not discuss your salary with anyone. The House recently passed a bill bearing your name, the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. It essentially reverses the Supreme Court ruling. A, A similar bill is still pending in the Senate. What's it been like for you since the Supreme Court ruling? I knew that this case would create a lot of interest, but it has been more than I would have ever anticipated. In fact, my attorney in Birmingham, Mr. John Goldfarb, he has stated that he is just flabbergasted at the attention this case has gotten because I do TV shows, I do speaking engagements. So I've just returned from Buffalo, New York, where I spoke to 160 people. And I have speaking engagements all the way up to next April of 08. But also, what hurts me, too, to know that there are so many women and minorities out there struggling to make ends meet and to earn a living for their families. And there are so many families that are, there's only one parent or one person earning a living. And it has been a terrible struggle for these people, especially in the Deep South. And they're getting cheated every day for not being paid what they should be paid. I know that many activist groups have taken up your cause, and and you've become a symbol, in in some cases, uh, of employment discrimination. Does it ever make you uncomfortable? Is it ever overwhelming to suddenly be pushed into the situation? The overwhelming part is that I just hope that everything, every word I say and everything I do promotes this and I can help because, see, right now I'm 69, I'll be 70 next spring, and I'm retired, and, and uh, I want to be able to help change this law because this is not right. Justice Ginsburg was exactly right in her dissent, everything she said, and I will be internally grateful for what she did say because it gave me the dignity that I can hold my head up, and I feel like that I did not get the award 
but I have won something else that's much greater. And if I can help change this law that will change it for my daughter, my granddaughter, and other people's children, and here in my state, actually surrounding states, I have had a lot of correspondence from men who have picked up the cause. We need to be careful when we vote and elect a president in 08 because it needs to, you need to think about who are they going to appoint to the Supreme Court. While Lily Ledbetter lost her case before the Supreme Court, she embodies the power and possibility of a single person determined to take a stand and make a difference in the world. She also tried to change the conversation. I think what we did at Justice Talking was to begin a huge conversation about America, its role in the world, its laws, and its constitution. It may well be an oversimplification to say this, but almost every argument that has currency today has its roots in debates that go back to the founding of this nation. Whether we debate the role of government, its powers and its limits, whether we debate the right of people to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, whether we see gun control as a personal right or a collective responsibility, whether we see campaign finance reform as a necessary counter to corporate greed or clamping down a basic right of free speech, all these arguments go way back to ideas about who we are as a country and a nation. The fact that we spent almost nine years talking about the Constitution, that in itself makes our entire staff proud. Justice talking may end, but show or no show, this conversation and these debates will continue in the courts, in demonstrations, and in the continuing battles that courageous men and women wage. We'd like to thank all of our stations and listeners and National Public Radio for their long-time support. Justice Talking was produced by the Annenberg Public Policy Center, which is directed by Kathleen Hall Jamison. Through the years, many talented people have had a hand in producing our show. Thanks to... Catherine Colbert. Ingrid Lakey. Cara McGurk. Erin Mooney. Julie Drizzen and Cheryl Flowers. Viet Leigh. Julie Mayshak. Jean Barron. Steve Mencher. David First. Gary Kelman. Laura Sider, Judy Jarvis, Annie Jurgens Bear, Stefan Frank, Eli Lesser, Elizabeth Bloskin. Gary Gaiman is our webmaster. And engineering by Scott Waz at Audio Post Philadelphia. And Michael Comstock with Indre Recording. And theme music by BJ Lederman. And I'm Margot Adler. From all of us here at Justice Talking, thanks for listening. Support for NPR comes from the Annenberg Foundation, advancing public well-being through improved communication, on the web at annenbergfoundation.org. From Kaufman, the foundation of entrepreneurship, celebrating entrepreneurs who start businesses and change the world, on the web at kaufman.org. And from the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, making grants to solve social and environmental problems at home and around the world, on the web at hewlett.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio.